0: The Cinemondo Podcast with Kathy, Mark, and Burke, talking about movies, horror, sci-fi, unusual, unknown, forgotten, underappreciated, always interesting. <laughs> Today we have a special guest in the studio. We flew him in on uh, Cinemondo Airlines, and he's staying at the lovely uh, Cinemondo Hotel in downtown
1: Cinemondo. It's
2: economy plus,
1: <laughs> really nice. A.K. the Motel Six on uh, Figueroa. <clears throat> Anyway, uh, Drew Thomas is here. Writer, director, filmmaker, auteur. Hello, everybody. Yeah, hey. Happy to be
2: here. <laughs> Welcome to the show. You know, is it, is it totally off topic to say that I actually love that music? Oh, you do? Yeah. I oh. really, really do. It's never cool. off topic
3: to actually give us compliments. Fair. Okay. That's a, that, <laughs>
2: I'm going to pick
1: your guys' brains later about it. That's a Burke Saul's com- That's a <laughs> composition. You're <laughs> kidding, <isn't laughs>
3: really? Yeah. And he he's played a, it, too.
2: He's a musician. Stuff to yeah. talk about. He's awesome. <laughs> Was it a Moog?
0: Um, there, do you want? We want to get into this now. Yes. I mean, yeah.
2: you guys can cut it out, right? No, let's get into <laughs> it.
0: I love the sound of Moog synthesizers—the depth and the heaviness of them. Yeah, I have a, I, an ARP twenty-six hundred. Okay, and I I'm going to pretend I know what that is. <laughs> oh, okay.
2: Is—is <laughs> is it something like that that, that does a that emulates a Moog? It's, it's older, older than that. Yeah, it's wow. like a big old one of those big old.
1: So it's know, an original, like from the '70s or '60s. Patch or cords and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, oh, we've
0: it, got stuff to talk about later.
4: Darwin, I don't dog. know what
1: any of
3: those words. I know mean. we should we should stop. That's okay. Oh, okay. Some people may know, and that's yeah. good. Well,
0: I, you know, I could go on and on about this stuff. Honest.
1: <laughs> well, I could talk about like you know the '70s. That was like that was stereos and that kind of stuff was you know you would go to the stereo store and just look at the new stuff. Yeah. equalizers and receivers and and I was you know, I was a total geek. Was you know, the stereo, stereo
2: store spread over two rooms? Was well it, there was there was the, there this, the, the the high, listening room the listening room right? yeah. which is where
1: you had the klipsch horn speakers and the massive you know the denon and all this you know crazy stuff and they used to for, it. for
0: demonstrations yeah. they used to use a lot yeah. of old what they used to call moog records where where it was uh like wendy carlos and um tomita and all these people that did these synthesizer records and the the reason they were used is because of the frequency, the the spectrum of the frequency from the really low to the really high, that went beyond normal instruments. You know, you could do these things that really showed off the sound systems. Those were those were used as demonstration records a lot back then.
1: <laughs> then you went home and played, you know, Partridge Family records, right. and then nobody, yeah, <laughs> and it wouldn't get the depth. You know, yeah, overkill. <laughs> but um, Drew, uh, Drew and I met a few years ago, and um, I saw his first film, Channeling, which came out in twenty. Second film. Second film. Right. First one's a documentary. <laughs> though, documentary. So, That's the yeah. the Coachella film. That's right. Well, Mark, let's talk what about did we talk about? You get stuff wrong. <laughs> I'm trying well, he's not completely
2: wrong. <laughs> he's the first not right. one the first one's a, always right. a concert documentary. <laughs> the next two were scripted. Um, so it was my first scripted film. First second scripted feature. Film.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And um, and I've seen all three. And they're all wow. great. Thank you. And you still generous. go to Coachella. Don't you still do, do that? I they,
2: do. Yeah, they've, they've booked me for this year, too. Wow. wow. I've only missed one since 1999. Wow. Um, and that's because I was in Mongolia making the Mongolian connection. <laughs> that's what's called a segue. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> get get off the Coachella. <laughs> get off Coachella well, that's, right now.
1: well, that's your latest film that um, is going to be released l- later this year.
2: Yeah, yeah. So we just signed with the distribution agency, and um, first, it's going to some of the European film markets, starting with Berlin. Um, but we expect it to be on streaming services later this year. You know, your typical iTunes and Amazon. Um, Netflix probably not because Netflix is not a good. Um, it's not a good platform for low budget independent cinema.
4: Interesting, believe
2: it or not, um, hmm. but uh, but iTunes and Amazon are, are just fine. And um, so we'll probably uh, channeling my second features there. And uh, Mongolian Connection will probably land both those places.
0: Now, Mongolian Connection, obviously, you couldn't have really shot in Mongolia. So you had to have recreated Mongolia somewhere here in a studio, on a soundstage <laughs> in Los Angeles. That's right. How
2: did you go about doing that? <laughs> we actually built a miniature Ulan Ulaanbaatar. Wow.
0: <laughs> One-to-one scale.
2: See, now there's people out there who are going to believe this stuff. No, we, we, we shot, um, I would say, 85% of the film in Mongolia. Um, nice and then we shot uh, about another 10% in Texas where the scenes the american scenes so scenes in the united states take place and then we um we just did pickups and such here in LA just simply because this is where the team lives at least yeah. the the american side of the team
4: yeah now <laughs> well, how did
0: it come about that you shot you actually shot a film in mongolia a lot of people feel like that's probably imagine that as being some really exotic difficult to get to place like you have to you know go to 12 different airports and to take a hot air balloon into the last, you know, <laughs> base camp.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's certainly exotic, Mongolia. But um, fortunately, the uh, the capital city is only a two hour flight. The capital city Ulaanbaatar is only a two hour flight from Beijing. Okay. And there's a lot of direct flights to Beijing. So um, what you typically do is you uh, you fly at night from Los Angeles, uh, overnight, mm-hmm. and you leave say one in the morning, and you arrive local time in. Um, in Beijing around 8 a.m. And then you take a second plane to, uh, to Alain and you get in around 11 a.m. Uh, y- you know, in theory, if you sleep on the plane, I never do. But if you do, it could feel as though you just went to sleep and woke up late in the morning, um, at your destination. Unfortunately, and I don't know how this works, but jet lag is still brutal. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but to tell the story about how this happened, um... I uh, I do a little teaching at a cinema television program in Texas. Uh, I got hired to do that by a producer I used to work with um, early in my career. I was a DP. I was a cinematographer on a VH1 show called Behind the Music. Yeah.
4: It was my oh, first okay.
2: real job yeah. out of school, and I was really really lucky to get it. And um, one of the producers, I did several shows with, like the Journey Behind the Music and such. He, he relocated with his family to Texas to head up this cinema television program um, at a school down there and uh, so I would go down there periodically either to teach cinematography or or filmmaking in general I really lean in when I teach I really really lean into visual storytelling mm. how to build scenes yeah. um, how to choose shots and um, you know its sort of in the Hitchcock model it's about giving the information you intend to give to the audience at the time you intend to give it to them. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. And how compositions can hint uh, to the audience what's going to happen next and how you can use that as a red herring, all, all these sorts of things. But I really, you know, um, <clears throat> I have a concern. It's probably a bit unfounded, but that um, now that everybody has 4K video cameras on their phones, there's a bit of a spray and pray mentality with young filmmakers where they feel like they just, you know, just hose it down. Who cares what, yeah. what camera you use, hose it down, hose it down, hose it down, and then figure it out later. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, the, the, the word that I, I use it so much when I teach that I get made fun of, um, the word I use is deliberate that, that real filmmakers don't, there's no accidents, right. Unless they're happy accidents, unless their plan is so strong that they're so relaxed on set that they can deviate from their plan. Yeah, if you have some mm. leftover oh, time for accidents. Yeah. Totally. Or, you know, you see something the opposite direction of, of, of where you expect to shoot. Yeah. All of a sudden, you know, uh, it's getting foggy down the road and and you can stage a, a scene of two characters walking in the fog and add a whole... You know, a great plan allows you that freedom. Yeah. Um, so I, I talked to the students about... Um, about being deliberate in every choice, yeah, and why simply like the the wrong font choice, um, <laughs> yeah. in a in yeah. a in your credits, Absolutely. yep, yeah. can can really just feel like a missed note,
0: and the right, right choice can imprint on people. I know people who, you know, I'm a font nerd, mm-hmm. and me too, uh, <laughs> like seriously, yeah, <laughs> and. There's, you know, there's a lot of um, discussion about the fonts that Stanley Kubrick used, yes. and you know, he's like probably the best example. Yes. But the other day, I was talking to a friend about the 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 um, credits. I haven't seen the movie, but it's a nominee, Little Women. And he was saying, I love the opening credit because of the font, but he said it was just enough of an edge to it to where it looked handmade. It looked like it was just enough there to where. A little bit of misalignment or a hand painted thing, but it was. He said it was done so perfectly, and he just we just went on and on about the font. <laughs> yeah,
4: that's funny. Well, you and know, you're
0: right. You know, it's those details.
2: I wonder if this isn't one of those things that that everybody who cares about movies, either secretly or, or not so secretly, thinks about. I feel like there's no way. Have you guys seen the um, the sketch on Saturday Night Live with um, oh gosh, Ryan Gosling?
3: Yes, um, about where, where um,
2: he's freaking out. The Avatar font about font, the font right? for the movie Avatar. Yes. Oh, because, because it's so they chose, Trajan. They right? chose well. Yeah. No, it wasn't Trajan. It he, he, says he says it's papyrus. Papyrus. papyrus um, that's and right. And, uh, the worst font ever. Yeah.
3: Well,
0: remember when that movie was coming out, and we had the original promotional stuff, and I was saying, "This is fake. Somebody faked this." Yeah, papyrus. Because they used papyrus, and that <laughs> is not a font that James Cameron
2: would Nobody ever, ever use.
4: That was yeah, really it's fun. wild.
2: And, but, but <laughs> That was a great <laughs> sketch. I mean, I, I love that sketch. And everyone really listening, if you get a chance, just do a search for um, uh, SNL, uh, Ryan Gosling, Papyrus. Um, <laughs> and it'll come right up and, and you'll have a great laugh. It, but it's one of those moments. You know, as a filmmaker, um, I give a lot of thought to, you know, if, if I watch, for instance, Apocalypse Now, and I think about the moment when um, uh, when the airborne uh, squad, like a better word, they're given the choice either you surf or you fight. Right. Mm-hmm. And as they're surfing, there's shells going off in the water. Now, um, and, and remember that that Coppola about had a nervous breakdown making Apocalypse Now. Oh, yeah. yeah. And he talked about, I'm way off subject here. Sorry, guys. I'll no, this is a good subject. This is actually no, on topic. We love um, it. <laughs> he... Uh, uh, he, was calling, he, he was calling his own film the Idioticy as right. he was making it. <laughs> That's right. Um, and I, I was thinking about that scene and the balls that, that, that were required to make that scene because a scene <laughs> where men are intentionally getting in the ocean and surfing while there's shells going off around them, mortars dropping and machine gun fire. Yep. Um If that didn't go just right, if you don't nail that tone... <laughs> Yeah, that's about that's the true. tone. Then you look insane and stupid.
0: <laughs> yeah, even with Robert Duvall sitting that's there true. with his shirt off and the hat, you know, totally. it's like yep. his character was so almost broad and almost just on the edge of being out of place in this film. Yeah, almost satire. You yeah,
2: a hundred percent. And and <laughs> with the wrong casting choice. Yeah. Or just if it wasn't complete a complete bullseye. Yeah. With something that's that absurdist. <laughs> it's not a complete bullseye it's going to make everyone in the theater's eye roll
1: yeah, yeah. it's details matter that was a yeah, solid sure. plan you got to nail it and coblo
0: is <laughs> so good at hitting those points like without going over the edge with certain characters you know there's moments in um you know like you're you're talking about these like that's sort of a comic moment you know mm-hmm. and there's a moment in um godfather 2 where the um the real you know the the guy who owns the apartment comes to uh, Don Corleone's place, and he's talking about the dog. The dog can stay. The dog can stay, you know. And he's like, and the rent will stay. And he's like, yes, remember that. And he tries mm-hmm. to leave, and the door won't open. And it's it's almost like if you were playing, you know, the the Benny Hill music under it, <laughs> because it was an the guy who played the part of the of the landlord is an Italian um, comedian, mm-hmm. so he was using all these sort of Italian comedian, you know gestures and movements and it's almost a comical thing Mm -hmm. but it doesn't have the comedy music under it so in this situation it ends up being really chilling in a way because he's scared to death yeah and suddenly that sort of humorous thing is an awkward weird feeling as opposed to being something that you're laughing at how silly this man is you're scared for him it's uncomfortable it's uncomfortable
2: Yeah. yeah um so to get back to the question, uh, I, I was I was flown down to Texas to this, this school also uh, has a fledgling production company, and you know in this part of East Texas they they can get clients and they can do stuff for the city of, of Tyler or, or um, one of the other local towns, um, you know, promotional videos for the town itself, or they do, you know, local commercials and so on and so forth, and it bills itself as a very hand hands-on program.
4: That's cool.
2: I was down there helping them shoot a music video, actually, for a, for a real mm-hmm. band, um, and uh, I was given a camera operator named Joshua Fischer, German, now German-American, young man, and uh, he had been a student at the school. And had moved to staff, they, they, they asked him to stay on, become a staff member, and basically become their staff cinematographer to teach the younger and new coming students um, about cinematography. So he and I worked quite close together on that and some other projects, and, and I liked him a lot. And um, also friends with his wife, and, uh, who's, who was also part of that program. And when, when these students come out to L.A., if, if I know them and they reach out to me, I'll really try to help them get started. Um, whether it's you know being an AC for me, an assistant camera person for me, or else operating on something that I'm DPing, or you know if I if I believe in their abilities, or if, if it's something that, that if, if their skills are not something that I can necessarily hire them for, I'll recommend them to something. Just try to get them started because we all know how hard that can be. Yeah. yeah um, and uh, so Yosua uh, had moved out here with his wife, and um, they had uh, at that point a newborn. And um, he and I had met for a couple, time, a couple times for lunch, and, and I had um, brought him on to a few jobs where I could. And uh, he called me and asked if I could meet for lunch, and I said, sure. And, and now I knew that Yosua had an unusual background, to say the least. Um, as I say, he's German, young German man, um, and uh, in his mid 20s uh, at that point. And he, um, his parents, right after the fall of the Soviet Union, his parents uh, had picked up and moved the whole family to Mongolia mm. um, to serve as missionaries. Oh. And um, uh, you know, th- at that point, it was, it was the Wild West. I mean, I heard really harrowing stories of what it was like to be in one of these satellite countries and as part of the, either a Soviet protectorate or part of the Soviet Union itself, yeah. um, Central Asian countries specifically. Mm. And um, so he had spent his formative years from three till 18 in, in Mongolia. And there's a symbol, a set of symbols on the Mongolian flag that each have a meaning, and he has it tattooed on his forearm. Oh. Oh. Wow. Um, and so he and I met for lunch, and, and we were just chatting and catching up. And he mentioned that he was in contact and had met with some people from this fledgling film community that was growing in Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia. Mm. And he says, well, you know, these uh, the, the dollar goes quite far. And he said, and, and uh, they have a... a Though it's a small population, their population will support uh, homegrown movies there. So they're making movies in the $200,000 budget range. And action films and thrillers and stuff. and Comedies, a lot of comedies. And they're turning them around um, and actually breaking even or making a profit. So they have a little bit of an country. infrastructure there, like a prop house and a rental place. And- they do. They've got um, quite strong technicians. And, um, I mean, it's, it's small. But a lot of these folks had worked on Russian films um, during the Soviet era. Um, wow. and, uh, and as I say, they, they really hit the ground running uh, in the mid-90s and started building this this little community. Oh. And so he, he and I are discussing this, and, and, and he says, well, oh, you know, these, they're, they're making this pretty good movies, pretty good production values for very, very little money. And I said, I want to make one. <laughs> he said, you do? And I said, yeah. I said, I, you know, it's been a few years since I did channeling. I'm really ready to make the next one. I said, what do we do? How do we make this happen? And he said, well, you know, it's funny because I had just, he said, I had just met with a, a couple of the Mongolian producers who are in town for, in L.A. for an Asian-American film festival oh, that's that right. one of their films was showing at. And they had said, well, geez, you know, we, uh, we'd like to work with an American director. So Yozwa sent them a link to channeling and um, sort of got the discussion going. meantime, I went home and started researching crime in Mongolia. Mm. What, is, what is an issue? Uh, I sort of immediately uh, thought, okay, well, um, genre-wise, if you're not going to have a major star, genre-wise, you, know, you typically lean into either action or horror. Right, right. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, the circumstances, I, I could have and did a little research into what could be some horror sort of stories uh, taking place in Mongolia, but I quickly segued to crime <laughs> and, um, you know, it's not, it's not a particularly dangerous... Uh, in, in Asia, it's one of the safer countries. Mm. Um, it's also very, very sparsely populated and really, really quite wild. Um, and, it, you know, it was it, uh, the history of Mongolians that they were nomads. Right. So we've all heard of Genghis Khan, though the real pronunciation is Chinggis Khan, for right. the record. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, you know, I knew next to nothing about Mongolia um, until I visited it in 2017 to scout for this film. Um, But we we ended up meeting, uh, scheduling a meeting on uh, one Halloween night, I think probably uh, 2016, Uh, Darwin, the absolutely beautiful blue... Pitbull is licking my hand. <laughs> he will not to... leave Drew alone at all. He loves. He's trying to give you high fives. I'm, I'm hoping that there'll be an arc of electricity from the microphone to my face <laughs> and that this will shock poor Darwin. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, other side. Okay. Um, <laughs> so he's
3: getting him so all So sorry. Um, he just, Darwin. Don't be sorry. He
2: I, loves I, too much. I, I absolutely, I'm a huge fan. <laughs> he can come visit if you guys have to go out of town. <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, so, uh, we had a meeting on a, ha- on a Halloween, uh, night in Hollywood and, um, it was, <laughs> it was quite close to the West Hollywood Halloween parade. Oh, We okay. were at a Mexican restaurant oh, on, no. on sunset. And so it took forever for them, their Uber to get them there, but they got there. And I think the meeting <laughs> probably went on for three and a half hours. Wow. They were just talking and getting to know each other. And they had by that point seen channeling and liked it, um, and uh I sort of expected them to come with a script and say, a matter of fact, Amra, who is the the Mongolian lead in the film, he plays Detective Gonzorig, a very sort of hard boiled, tough police detective. Um uh and he was one of the producers on the film and he's the biggest star in Mongolia, oh. Bar none. Mm. Um and uh he actually told me a long story, a quite good story, um, that that he wanted to develop into a film. And I thought he was pitching it to me. And at the end, um, he said, well, no, I'm thinking of doing this one. And, you know, it's it's such a Mongolian story. I'm thinking, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then they both looked at me, the the two, um, Uran is his wife's name, and she was uh, executive producer. And Amra, they both looked at me and said, well, what do you have? What do you want to do? <laughs> And after saying, well, I think action is a good choice for us under the circumstances, and I think maybe a story about um, an American, and they wanted me to try and find somebody with some strong credits. They knew at our budget point, um, which, by the way, was $400,000. Um, they knew at our budget point we weren't going to have a huge star, right? Um, that just wasn't going to happen, and we weren't going to bring a huge star in late winter, early spring to Mongolia, <laughs> which, yeah. for the record, um, it's uh, Ulaanbaatar is the coldest capital in the world, right. and oh, Mongolia wow. is the, um, I think it's one of, if not the least populated country in the world. Wow, um, it's twice the size of Texas and has just over three million people. Mm. Um, so it's, it's population-wise, tiny, land-wise, massive. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, and, of course, it's sandwiched between China and Russia. Yeah. Um, and that, uh-huh. that has really, of course, affected their history. Um, Ulaanbaatar translates to Red Hero, and it was named that because of uh, the Russians ostensibly taking Mongolia under their wing um, when uh, Chinese troops had, uh, had been amassing at their southern border. History buffs out there, I could have gotten some of that wrong. Um, So uh, your mileage may vary on the uh, factual basis of that, but that's what I gleaned from uh, what little I know about it. Um, And, you know, it's one of those moments that, you know, we're talking about making an independent, low-budget action movie in Mongolia. Right. Uh, When I would talk to somebody about, um, about coming to work on it, I would always say, this is, it is what it is. Most yeah. of these types of things never happen. Mm-hmm. But I got a sense almost right away, and, and, and actually Amra um, told me that he had the exact same feeling. I got a sense almost right away that it was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, at one point over that very first dinner, Amra looked across the table at me and he said, you know, he said, "I I don't know how it is here, he said, but... In Mongolia, if we make up our mind that we're doing something like this, we do it. Right. And I wish did. it were like, like that here. No, that's, yeah. not that's, like that's, not, that's not the way it is. That's the opposite. Not the way I think he knew that and was being polite. Um, right. But, uh, you know, I've been really blessed because I've written exactly two feature-length screenplays, and they've both been produced. Wow. Yeah. Um, wow. That's sort of a little misleading because it's not as though I wrote these things, put them on a shelf and then somebody called and said, I want to make your movie. <laughs> it was in both cases, the film was greenlit before there was a script. Um, there was a concept in both cases, but then like No how you
3: did that. Hmm.
2: Yeah. Well, so, um, <laughs> so that, that's uh, how, yeah. <laughs> that's how the Mongolian connection got, got greenlit. And that was late in 2016, early in 2017 or spring 2017. I went over there for location scouting, um, which was an insane experience. Uh, in the, um, the months in between, I had um, worked on an outline uh, with another writer, actually, and put together a story based on everything in that film, even the absurd moments, are either directly based on things that happened to me when I was in Mongolia, <laughs> or else um, are based 100% in the business model of Criminal organizations in that part of the world, mm-hmm. and how they stretch out to the rest of the world. Wow. Hmm. Um, so, if you see the film, of course, there is some, you know, it's it's a movie first. It's not a documentary. It's not um, it's not intended to be uh, a documentary or absolute fact. But um, uh, logical lapses aside, it is uh, it is very, very, very reality based, and hmm. I did copious research on. Because I just didn't want to be a BS artist. I'm not willing to do that. And yeah. I figured um, I would protect myself um, from any slings and arrows <laughs> if I could point to the what happens in the film, the logic of the plot, and right. say, this is actually absolutely the way this sort of crime, the way these sorts of organizations work. Hmm. Um, so.
0: It's interesting. It's, I mean, it's probably not just more you know, realistic to make it that way, but it probably functions better, the mechanics of the film, because that's the way it works in real life. All the results of those things are realistic as well.
2: Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, there's, of course, the cliche, uh, you know, uh, people say, oh, you couldn't write this, or, you (laughs) you know, truth is stranger than fiction. Well, I think we all have a sense of, there's a certain satisfaction, like eating a really good bite of food, um, (laughs) that, you know when something is true.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or when something happens in a way that it... That's the thing we were talking recently about um, 70s films and the 70s crime films. And we were talking about how there tended to be a lot about... That was... One of my favorite things is film noir from the 40s. I love old 40s films. The stories, they all tended to be about crimes that were committed during the 40s. You mm-hmm. know, the types of crimes... And then in the later years, as you see kind of happening in the Godfather films when narcotics started coming in, the feel of crime movies changed into that world, you mm-hmm. know. And then you were then your crime films started changing into that, you know, during the sixties, I guess, and the in the seventies. And by the seventies, pretty much all crime films were about cocaine and heroin and you mm-hmm. know. But if you go back to the forties, a lot of it's about, you know the numbers racket and, and uh, blackmail and murder, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) murder for hire. And, but yeah, if you get those things, if you have a feel for it and you can always tell the, the people that I respect the most as far as writing and filmmaking, as far as telling crime stories are the people that you can tell have done the research or lived it in some way. And a lot of the people that were making these films in the forties had been through wars Mm -hmm. and had lived through the depression and had been desperate and been in the streets and knew that world. Yeah. And you can tell. Yeah. And in the 70s, a lot of those people had too, you know? Yeah. And you can always tell when somebody's on the level with their stuff, especially with crime. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, well, it's
3: funny. I watched it um, this past week. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're, you're getting into it and you start and you're like, okay, I'm going to watch this action movie. But it turns out it felt very um, grounded and like... Um, I'm going to say real, but I felt like I was getting this whole new perspective on a crime syndicate idea from a whole different culture. And right. so while you're watching it, it has a lot of the really fun crime, you know, action stuff that we love, but then it brought, I love the the diversity of the cast and I think casting, you know, the way Dalton character uh, being the American who's kind of your way in. So people don't go, it's just a foreign film. I can't deal, you know, yeah, he's our I love it. Yeah, it was yeah. great. I mean, I loved his fish out of water. I, and, it was real, it felt really fresh. Like Thank I loved you. seeing that from a different perspective like that. It was very cool, but it, it also, like you said, it felt, it felt real. Like I didn't feel like it was too cartoony or, you know, over the top or just kind of, it felt like someone knew something about what they were doing here instead of just sort of, we're just going to throw an action movie and just set it in Mongolia. It right. felt like more than that, like embedded in the culture, which I really liked.
2: Bless you. Yeah. I appreciate that. <laughs> you know, um, uh, as I said, I did a lot of research and, um, uh I started simply by researching, I think on the State Department website, what are, what are crime statistics in Mongolia? What is an issue facing Mongolia? And it turns out um, that Mongolia is a source country for human trafficking, mm-hmm. both for workers mm. into China um, and uh, sex trafficking, also oh. mostly into China and into other places, too, all over the world. Um, and so I really started reading about that. And I started reading about trafficking. There's a book um, I'm sorry I f- I'm forgetting the author's name, but the book is called God in the Brothel mm. and uh, the author had gone undercover in sex trafficking situations all over oh. the world. Mm. Um, I read another book called Apologies to my Censor which talked about um, a town right on the Chinese side of the China Mongolia border where um, they literally have a statue in the town square mm. to the beauty of the Mongolian woman mm. um, and uh, and they walked down a street that was on both sides lined with brothels populated with with Mongolian women so I, I started researching that now I um, I don't know if the United States is a country that receives Mongolian trafficked women, but certainly we have plenty of of issue uh, yeah. in the West yes, with, sure. with trafficked women. Yeah. And um, I, I, I looked into the structure of how these brothels form, how they work, um, some of the really nefarious stuff that goes on. There's a line in the film where um, uh, where an FBI uh, administrator named, uh, the actor's name is Deborah Pooitt, um mm-hmm. And uh, she says... Um, uh, Wade Dalton, uh, the character played um, by uh, Hawaiian American Kaevi Ka uh he asks her, "Why is this woman who we arrested at this brothel in Texas, this Mongolian, and why, why is she in handcuffs? She's a victim." That was right. a great scene. And wow, the the administrator responds, responds "He's a, she's a criminal. She's mm-hmm. a criminal." Right. Yeah. And he says, "You know, she, no, she's a victim in this." in this situation and, and, uh, the, the administrator Pierce says, do you know how many of these women who are trafficked become traffickers themselves? Mm-hmm. And that is, that is a sad, uh, wow. uh, uh, of course, a very sad reality that does mm-hmm. happen. Um, yeah. and part of that is, is that, um, it's particularly hard for these women once this has happened to them, to go home, mm-hmm. right, right, to be reintegrated back into society. Yeah. Now, there was a shop that I that I went to in Ulaanbaatar, that is that sells only crafts made by formerly trafficked women, oh. um, to help them get back on their feet. Uh, oh. In an early script, there was a scene because this is also a reality, where in a park in Ulaanbaatar, um, an organization that helps these women, they just go and, and in the park they've got coffee set up, and um, snacks, some breakfast foods or whatever. And if you've been in this situation, you can come and talk to somebody. No, oh. And um, That's cool. uh, one of the books I read described, actually it was a magazine article, described uh, somebody from this organization sitting in this park and just slowly women sort of trickling in seemingly out of nowhere and sitting and just needing to talk because they've been so besmirched by this experience. Yeah. Um, now, of course, this is a, it's, it's a dark and, and difficult subject matter. And um, I wanted to do it justice, which is why I really leaned into um, to telling the truth about, uh, about what happens to these women. But I also, first and foremost, um, wanted to make an entertaining, fun action movie. Right. So there's actually a lot of humor in the film, um, mostly at the expense of Wade Dalton, mm-hmm. the American. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The reason for that is is because when I went there, all the stupid junk that would happen to me, <laughs> I wrote happening to him. Right. Oh,
1: I, I know. We won't spoil anything, but I know what, what you're talking about. We can talk, yeah. about,
2: the, we can talk <laughs> well, about the repetitive car gag. Okay, that's what I'm <laughs> yeah. thinking of. Yeah. So you yeah. did that a lot. I did that a lot. Well, so Okay, so Mongolia, they get their cars um, from both China and Japan. Cars coming from Japan have their steering wheels on the right. Cars coming from (laughs) China have their steering wheels on the left. Mm -hmm. And so um, it is an absolute 50-50 shot, (laughs) literally 50-50 shot, which side of the car the steering wheel is going to be on. And so the American, right after landing, um, gets into the police vehicle he's supposed to be taken into town with, and he gets in on the wrong side, and the steering wheel is right in front of him. (laughs) And so next time he climbs into a car, he's he's now sure which side the steering wheel is going to be on. And he gets in on the left side, expecting the steering wheel to be on the right. And the steering wheel is right in front of him. Right. <laughs> and then the third time, the, the second time is sort of a throwaway, which I think is just the model way to do a repetitive gag like this. Yeah. The second time you almost like, Oh, okay. Third time, uh, they're escaping from a safe house and they've just been through, uh, a very rough fight and a gun battle. And, um, he, uh, I, I, I set up the shot so it's this triumphant moment shot in slow mo as he and the fugitive in his in his custody burst th- out some doors out into a courtyard of a of a compound in the hills of Mongolia, blast a couple bad guys who were who are disguised as cops, and jump into one of these fake police cars. Um, and I uh, have the music swell, and the American Wade Dalton slides across the hood of the the car, uh, Dukes of Hazard style. I loved right. that my it, I'm like, that's so yeah. great. We go
3: sliding over to the cinematic. Oh, and
2: if you want to make actors happy, tell them to to slide in slow motion while holding a handgun across right. the hood of a oh car. Oh my god, it's um, not easy. Everyone wants to do that. Thank God there was no hood ornament. Um, yeah, and uh, he he gets into the. Again, the wrong side of the car, but now it's it's they're literally under fire, um, and so in the worst possible moment, <laughs> and that was one of the first ideas uh, that I had for for some humor in the film. In, in that was the film. great. I think there's a bunch of moments like that. Well, that was the
3: thing, like we're talking about, and, you know, the human trafficking, how sad and horrible. But the movie is not a dark, depressing film at all. I mean, it's very. <laughs> so, I mean, it has that element, but it's actually a really fun. You know exciting film to watch and the cast is so charismatic I mean I don't know who any of these actors were but they were just riveting great actors they were you should say their names because I will mutilate them (laughs) sure
2: yeah so the American lead um, his name is E.V. Lyman Um, and uh, he was uh, a supporting actor in uh, the big budget um, bank robbery film heist film called Den of Thieves he's got a bunch of other great credits to his name he's been in a few westerns Um, he was on American Horror Story and and actually, that's a story. If you guys don't mind me talking about casting a little bit, yeah. Um, and I should say the the uh, uh, Amra, the Mongolian producer um, and huge star over there, played uh, the Mongolian police detective. He was great. Um, thank you. And then Sanjar Mahdi uh, plays the fugitive Serik, um, who was arrested in Texas in when they bust the brothel that he's. He's actually, you know, nobody would know this from watching the film, but that character is not there working as a pimp, per se, even though he's accused of it the rest of the film. He was there to rescue the woman, um, uh, played by uh, Tsetseg Byamba, um who was our, our, our female lead and trafficked woman who had... Uh, th- that's a love affair that's in the mm-hmm. story. And he actually was just coming to town to, uh, to execute the person who had trafficked her and bring her back to Mongolia, with him um, of course that's not the way things go but um uh yeah so um i had an actor whose name i, I won't mention um who had signed on to the film he said i can't do this until april 1st oh, oh wow we were supposed to shoot you're nukes. leaving we were supposed yeah. to start shooting mid-march and i did something crazy early the next morning i didn't sleep well got up early the next morning and I did something and I, I said to myself as I did it, this is a waste of time. I put a post on my Facebook page. I said, I'm looking for um, an actor with serious credits to his name to be a lead in a movie I'm about to start shooting overseas. Sort of a Hail Mary. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, that's funny. <laughs> almost right away, a camera op uh, reached out to me and said, um, Have you ever heard of Kaivi Lyman? And he sent me a bunch of pictures of him. Including screen grabs from Den of Thieves and such and I, I looked at him. And I said, I can't believe this because I mean You know, you put a post up like that. I said I'm looking for a man roughly in this age range um, American to play this role and I'm having women sending me their headshots, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. um, and I mean uh, children. I mean seriously, <laughs> seriously uh, Somebody who wanted to do voiceover. I don't need voiceover <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um <laughs> sad business and uh, so this guy out of the blue sends me um images of Kaivi and says this this guy's great and i said okay he does look great and i said and i like his credits and i said um how can i get in touch with him and then this guy writes back to me well you know if this is a porn you should hire me because ha 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 smiley face smiley, smiley, smiley oh my god and i wrote no like you don't understand like
1: nobody's <laughs> laughing. here. Yeah. This there's, is no, not, there's no, this is there's not a joke. no joke. There's hilarious. no happy emojis here.
2: This is a three alarm fucking fire. Yeah. <laughs> we need an answer. And so, and he's like, I'll reach out to him now. He reaches out to him. I get a, I get a message back from him. Keevy wants to, to read the script and talk to you. Um, send the script to his credit. Keevy read the script right away. And nice. within an hour, hour and 15 minutes, had read it one and a half times. Wow. wow. And he called me up and he said, look, um, he said, I, you know, I, I'm halfway through the, the second reading of this script and I'm liking it more every time I look at it. Um, he said, so let's talk. And I said, I've, I've got X amount of dollars for you. <laughs> I've got four points in the film. Um, it's a lead role. It's a fish out of water story and you're the fish. <laughs> And I said, I'm leaving for Mongolia in a day and a half. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, and if you want this role, it's yours. You don't need to send me a tape. You don't need to do anything. Wow. I've watched your I've watched your reel on online, and I know you're right for this role. And now, of course, I, I mean, if you watch the film, this guy manages to 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 show that he can fight, and he can fight. He's a he's an expert martial artist with yeah. years and years of training. That's amazing. Um, and shows he can care and be tough, but he's also very very funny. Mm. His comic timing is above reproach. Um, and uh, and he was an absolute dream. And um, I you know I, I've told him since then because he's thanked me profusely for, for putting him in this film because he enjoyed the role so much. Um, and I've told him I, you know I I'm, I'm indebted to you because mm. um, I can't now imagine anybody else for that role, and I, I legitimately can't.
0: But that was a yeah, risk, man. To, to huge. Not even I mean, it's looking at his reel and looking at his resume and everything, that's one thing. But actually knowing whether or not you get the guy or you guys get along or mm-hmm. you know, if he's easy to work with or totally. if he's a nightmare, yeah. you, know, you don't know. And now you're stuck in Mongolia with him. You're, you know, that's a big about risk. But you
1: know. imagine you've worked on this film for a few years. You've written umpteen, probably, uh, revisions, which I was so thrilled that I got to read an early one. True. And by the way... That's right. I remember that. <laughs> yeah, the yeah. script that you sent me that I read with, and the movie, I said, you know, you captured what you put on paper Thank you. on film, which is not always done. Right. But anyway, so <laughs> you put all this time and effort into it, and then like two days before you're leaving, you're yeah. halfway across the country, your lead flakes on you. Uh, I hard. can't imagine the, the flop sweat and the panic of that.
2: Absolutely. You know?
1: And,
0: and I mean, you have to find
2: someone. Yeah. Oh, I... I, I I you know I would have had a, a little bit of time, but in Mongolia, but I knew I was going to be insanely busy with pre-production. Yeah, looking at every location, um, and booking all the local talent, and um, picking finding a stunt coordinator, uh, which we we got Lloyd Bateman out of the states, and then a German um, uh, Tolga Demeron, uh, who did our fight design out of Germany, um, Turkish guy lives in Germany. Um, it's international yeah Um, (laughs) that's great that's diverse and actually I was in Oklahoma um, on a job when I sent you the script and at that point I think we were about to or had just signed and I almost said his name but I'm not going to the (laughs) actor who who flaked um, just say his name fuck that guy (laughs) well
1: well, I just think it's, to have that happen, you know, if you're shooting right down the street here in L.A. Yeah. Is, oh, yeah. is panicked enough. But figuring the time change and going to a foreign country where you don't know the language and there's so many other things that you have to sort of rely on. It has, yeah. has, to, it has to be clockwork for it to work. And I'm sure you're under a tight shooting schedule.
2: We were. And, and you know, I, I said to myself, first of all, I was in no position to, to be picky. But I didn't – this is one of those rare – and I I can only think of divine intervention happening here because <laughs> – if you look at Keeve, um, you know, he's not, I wasn't settling for the guy. Right. His look is perfect. And of course, I, I remodeled the story, remodeled the character um, after him. But the balance of, uh, of, of ability to play emotion, believably, and be tough, believably, but also be the brunt of so many jokes in the film. Right. Um, right. Uh, and 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 play them uh, just right was 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 really it just I I mean I don't know how we lucked into into getting him. Yeah. And just but,
0: the uh, the the idea that you didn't have that luxury of getting to know him as a person and a true and a workmate. You know, you're going to be working when you make a film. I don't know how many of our listeners know this, but when you make a film, it's very intimate. You 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 don't just see these people like you see your coworkers in an office. You know, three doors down. These are people that you're sharing emotions and emotional heaviness and and intense relationship with people that you work with on a, that's why there's so many tears at rap parties you know mm-hmm. <laughs> you feel like you've been through combat with these people sometimes you've set up camp and you've you've endured all these things with them and to not have that luxury of you know just hangout time with someone before, you're, before you commit to having them in a film. That's brave.
2: Yeah. It was, you know, and, and, and there was a whole lot of luck involved. Yeah. Um, and you never want to rely on luck, of course. We, we talk about having a plan. <laughs> um, but it sounds but like
0: you have a good gut feeling about this guy, you know, and it was like, just, okay, here we go. <laughs> I, I really did.
2: And then, uh, so it was early morning when I posted on Facebook. It was probably about 8 or 9 in the morning, maybe a little later, when I got Evie on the phone um, and he had read the script. Um, maybe 10 a.m. Doesn't matter. Uh, and then I had lens tests that day. We brought our lenses. We shot on anamorphic lenses made by Hawk, a German company. Oh. Um, we got them from Keslo Camera. And we took them with us to Mongolia. We used the only Alexa, the Alexa Mini, um, which was brand new and nobody had used it. And one of the conditions of us getting this camera, renting this camera in Mongolia, because we got it from an organization that owned it and didn't really need to rent it out. They were going to use it for their own stuff. Oh. Uh, one, one of the conditions was our cinematographer, Yozua, who, who knew the camera well, had to teach. I was about to those. say it. So I was funny. about to say was you it. Can, like, you guys can rent our camera, but A, Amra... Um, our Mongolian lead again, he had to do, I think, two or three television commercials for free for these people. And um, my cinematographer had to teach their staff how to shoot with this. Right. That's hilarious. Because
0: you have to learn how to shoot with an Alexa. It's not like something that you just sort of click, you know, run (laughs) and it shoots. Agreed. You know, really to
2: make that camera sing, and I think he did, um, uh, to make that camera sing, you need to know it. You need to know its quirks. It actually is not It's not like some of the newer cameras, like the uh, Sony Venice, that has uh, uh, dynamic range for days. Yeah. For days. The Alexa is actually a relatively slow, speaking of exposure time, a relatively slow camera. Yeah. It makes a beautiful painterly picture, Mm -hmm. um, creamy skin tones. It's a wonderful camera. But we, um, you know, style-wise, everything, we really leaned into sort of a 70s look. Yeah. And so we shot on these, these Hawk lenses are from the 1980s. Mm-hmm. And, um, we, we did a lens test at Keslow. We tried several and we fell me and my, my camera operator, George Ballinger, who also spent a couple of his formative years in, in Mongolia, uh, was why, one of the reasons he was the pick. Um, and he and I had been friends for a long time. George, uh, George met me at Keslow and we started testing lenses and as I say, fell in love with this set of Hawks. Um... Evie Lyman, the, the American lead, um, after he and I got off the phone, I said, look, I'm doing this thing, and it's in your part of town. And he said, I'm coming over. <laughs> so he came, and he was our our model okay. for oh. our lens test. So you did that's get perfect. to work with him a little this bit. Is before, yeah. I, this is before I booked him. Yeah, I oh, told him funny. the deal, and he said it sounded great, but I still need to talk to his agent, and I still need to unbook um, Mr. Flake. Right. And... Um, <laughs> Uh, ah, you said his name ah, Mr Blake <laughs> yeah. um, now we can google him. <laughs> I know he's yeah, fine um. And uh, so I, I also had an idea of his character right away. And also how he looked on the lenses we eventually Right, exactly. right On the perfect. actual lenses. So that really yeah. and you're He did have a 70s
3: them. look, too. He had that kind of cool 70s dude look. <laughs> I like that. He did. He did.
2: We leaned into sort of Robert Redford. The mustache. Yes. Robert Redford. From and, um,
1: and there's an early scene in Texas where they get into a, uh, you know, a cool muscle car, mm-hmm. which, of course, is, you know, I know yeah. is near it, and dear to your heart. Yes,
2: exactly. I'm a total, for those who don't know, and I don't know why you would know. I'm a, I'm a, <laughs> now a, you're about to. Uh, yeah, you're, I'm. I'm a total car nerd and I love American muscle cars now um, there is a 1970 uh, Dodge Charger 440 six pack in uh, green I forget the name of the color it's not green with envy it's some other green and um, we got it for $400 rental what oh Oh, wow but I did not want such a flashy car it is supposed to be a car that I mean when I interviewed the police detective who had spent years in undercover work he said, you know, when you, when you, when you become a bad guy, you, you drink at the bad guy bars, you drive the bad guy car,
4: right.
2: you speak with the bad guy's language. He said, that's, that's what it is. So um, these two FBI agents, um, both are working undercover. Uh, he gets picked up by Brandon Fobbs, an African-American actor who was in my previous film as well, um, who's an excellent actor. He was, uh, he was on The Wire. There's a bunch of other amazing oh, okay. credits to his name. Um, Brandon, I, I could not find a car. I wanted, I wanted a cool car. Actually, what I wanted, if anybody out there knows cars, is I wanted a nineteen eighty something Buick Grand National in black. <laughs> <laughs> um, wow, pretty specific. What, if, yeah, if yeah. you're watching, um, if you're watching Watchmen on HBO, wow, yeah. um, Angela, yes, the 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 lead character, drives a black oh. Buick Grand National. It's a cool car. It okay. is
1: yeah. a cool car. Regina King drives it.
2: Exactly right. Yeah. Um, and so I wanted that car, but I could not find one for the life of me, so I was really ready to settle for a lot of different things, Chevy Nova, anything that had some swagger to it. This car's kind of the Dodge Charger 1970 uh, in green. It's a little (laughs) bit over the top, so I actually hung a lantern on it, and I had had Wade, K.E.V. Lyman's character, say to him, nice car, Lieutenant Starsky, and Brandon Fobb's character. um, Troy says back, Starsky drove a Torino. I love that line. I actually
3: wrote that down in my notes because yeah. <laughs> I was like, I was obsessed with Starsky and Hutch for a while there. And then the fact that when he said that, I'm like, that's not a Torino. And then he said that, I'm like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> love that. It was so good. And that he he said it in a really snotty way. Like, yeah.
2: That's Starsky <laughs> a... <laughs> drove a Torino. Yeah. It was so good. <laughs> Dumbass. <funny>. <laughs> <laughs> I loved that. <laughs>
3: So another, I think another star-making performance would be the sa- Sajar Mahdi, is that how you say it?
2: Yeah, Sanjar Mahdi. Oh,
3: my God. He was, he was, you can take your eyes off the guy. Like, he was amazing in that. I thought he was, he had the super chill sort of affect, but he felt almost like he was kind of coiled inside. And I thought he was, you know, I, if he doesn't get like a ton more work from this, I don't understand <laughs> Hollywood at all. Well,
4: so,
2: you know, it's... <laughs> It's so strange because you say, you say, oh, somebody's big in Kazakhstan or someone's <laughs> right. big in Mongolia. It sounds like a punchline. Right. You know, oh, I'm really, what was the, uh, was it um, in Spinal Tap? Oh, we're really big in Japan. Yes, yeah, big uh, in yeah. Japan. You know, mm-hmm. but you go over there and it's not a joke. Yeah. When I would ride oh, around yeah. the country location scouting with Amra, he was being stopped to, for photographs, for signatures cool. all over the place. And meanwhile, the six foot six American guy with him is standing off to the side taking pictures of him with, with you know school kids and stuff yeah, like that. They funny. all know him and love him. That's really Sanjar is a massive star. In Central Asia, I can see why. And he's he's devastatingly handsome, almost yeah. too good looking. Yeah, yes. he, almost, um, he
4: looks almost
3: like he'd be in Twilight very easily. Yeah, he's yeah. going to listen to this and
4: just he's, he's going to hate us gonna, now. He's going <laughs> to really love it. You're me. so pretty. Um, <laughs> he's dreamy. I've never even seen him. He is, he's, he he's smoldering. He's super, devastatingly super good handsome. Yeah, very very and
1: handsome. And he had that
3: incredible um, knife fight. Was just great.
1: Well, you. I, ha- I want to talk about the action stuff. Yes, let's I mean do like. And without giving away the plot or anything, but there's an early uh, gunfight scene mm-hmm. that is beautifully yeah. choreographed. You. Because you know, sometimes you know, there's the, you know, gunfight scenes are. are you know, generic. They can be. So, they can really be the boring, the, the most boring part of a show if it's oh, p- yeah. if it's poorly. Uh, it's poorly called quickly. all
2: the John Wick movies. Right.
1: Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah. there's
3: so many of them that you're like,
1: wow. That well, was no, great. they just become yeah. mind-numbing. But yeah. this one is a great setup. It's very De Palma esque in Thank sort you. of the way it, you, yeah. you you frame everything and what happens, and it's be- and you, see every, you know exactly what's happening. So I, th- that's my pet peeve. That's the trick. It's yeah. like, I want to know what's Chaos happening in this ch- I want to go, okay, this yeah. is where he's looking, this is what this what's happening here, or this yeah. person's in trouble. I need yeah. to know that, even if it's split-second stuff. And if I don't get that, I don't care about the scene. You
2: absolutely, yeah. and first of all, thank yeah. you for mentioning De Palma. I think you know, you and I have talked about yeah. De Palma. Um, I'm a yeah. massive fan. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've actually been planning to write him a letter just literally just thanking him for his work. (laughs) I mean, um, uh, The Untouchables in particular is a huge uh, influence on me. Oh, yeah. It's brilliant. Um, And the way he builds scenes like no other. Yeah. And um, uh, screen direction and geography are requirements for shooting action. Yeah. Yeah. And if you don't do that right, you very quickly confuse the audience and then they're out. Yeah. yeah, If it looks like people shooting at each other are shooting the same direction,
4: yeah.
2: um, if you get that geography wrong, if you jump that 180 degree line, you, if you don't establish it, if you don't have things in the room that the audience already knows where they are, I don't care if it's a fern yeah. deep in the background, <laughs> but if it's a splash, if it's a dash of color deep in the background that mm-hmm. establishes where characters are in relation to each other. And uh, when I met with the stunt coordinator, uh, first of all, a lot of the specifics of the action were written into the script um, because I was writing for myself and I knew I could do that. Um, but when I met with them, uh, both Lloyd Bademan and uh, Tolga Demeron, I said, guys, you know, when we design these fights, I said, we need something in every fight scene that's a jolt, a bit of a surprise, something that mm-hmm. people haven't seen before in every right. single yeah. one. Um, Matter of fact, if I had to do it over again, I would add more of that. But (laughs) there's uh, there's a shootout early in the film um, with a SWAT team where one of our lead characters fires a gun that is still tucked into the boot of one of the SWAT guys. (laughs) He's got a boot holster. And he he knocks the guy over, grabs his leg, points his entire leg (laughs) at somebody else, grabs the gun um, that's still strapped to the guy's uh, foot, and fires it and takes about... a a third of the guy's foot with him. Um, (laughs) And so I wanted there to be something, some punctuation on every action scene that that felt a little different. Now, um, truth be told, the the action scene, Mark, that you mentioned um, uh, is very much De Palma-influenced and very much Mm -hmm. Peckinpah-influenced. I watched The Getaway Mm -hmm. uh, a lot. Um, As well as there's, I think, an unfairly obscure film um, and I'm going to butcher his his name, so I apologize. But by, by a director named Phil Jonau, or Jono, mm-hmm. Um mm. called State of Grace, yeah, with Gary Oldman and Sean Penn. Sure. Um, and uh, it has it has just really fantastic and very hard hitting action scenes yeah. in it as well. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
3: yeah, yeah, definitely does.
0: Yeah, was, there's definitely what you're saying about geography is something I work on shows where there's a lot of um, action choreography and fight choreography. And that is one of the hardest issues. One of the people don't understand how hard it is to do action in films. <laughs> well, how to stage see, it? You
1: can see how you know, there's so many big budget movies where it's incomprehensible. Yeah, yes. yeah. How the hell did this get? Yeah. edited this way or shot this way I'm always whatever. impressed
3: when there's a big fight scene and you're like wow I understood everything that was happening how do they do that and you like felt it, it seems it. so chaotic but you well I love being able to keep track of the the violence it's like okay I get it
0: but not only do you keep your place in the space yeah. you also keep you also have a feel for how it feels to be in yeah. to be behind this box or whatever it is and how how much suspense there is with where you are yeah. it's hard to explain it is but you have to you have to sure make people feel like they're there in the room yeah. and just as vulnerable as the person who's under attack or whatever. Yeah, you, you
2: absolutely do. Yep. Geography is incredibly important. And, you know, um, my second film, Channeling, there's some action, in there's some car chase. Is there, some I was particular. just going to talk
1: about your car chase in this one and in that one. I, and I'd love
2: yeah. to, I'd happy to talk about both yeah. of this, particularly yeah. that there's a story about the car chase and Mongolian Connection that I'll tell you guys. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, we... <laughs> We covered the car chase in both films with a lot of wide shots and movement. But I, I promised my stunt guys as well as my fight um, designer and my stunt coordinator that if we were putting people into, in, real people into real danger, and actually Kaivi um, e. Lyman escaped getting hurt in an accident on set, just barely escaped. Um, we had no injuries on this film, thank God. Um, but we had ah. some real close calls, Ugh. and I'm the kind of person that if somebody got hurt badly hurt on one of my films, I don't know how I would forgive myself. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. everything is done to be as safe as possible. But you know, we're we're trying to do things that look very dangerous, but in fact are reasonably safe. Yeah. yeah. Um. I mean, we throw somebody down a down a hole yeah. in in the film. That and was me. <laughs> it was. It was. Inti- that was one of those moments. that's intended. That's a, a little bit of cruelty that, that, that is in the film. Um, burying an old man alive in a in a uh, a hole in the ground um, that is a mine. That, that by the way was a legitimate hole in a legitimate a legitimately illegal gold mine oh, in wow. Mongolia. Um, but uh, I promised them that uh, that they if we were going to do this, that people were going to see. It was going to make it onto the screen. Mm. We weren't going to put people in danger and then waste it. Right. And um, I had, uh, I, I'm risking trashing a great filmmaker here, and I don't mean to, but I had some stunt guys on my second film who had all worked on one of the Bourne films, not mm-hmm. the first one. Mm. And they were doing just incredible stunts, incredible things. And then they saw the film and everything was shot, long lens, uh, where oh. the camera was shaking for, for oh. it to look for more sort of, quote, real. Oh. Um, and no sense of geography and, uh, and not really satisfying action. Because again, you haven't established, if you don't know how far or how long a staircase that you're riding a motorcycle down is, right. yeah. if you don't know how steep that is or how rough, uh, hewn those stairs are, and you don't know the pathway to those stairs and the <laughs> pathway from those stairs... Then it's not going to be very exciting. It's just like, oh, he's going downstairs now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I made that. I made that oath, and I think we, and I hope we, we, mm. we adhered to that. Um,
1: no, there were impressive. no the action set pieces. The, exactly. Yeah. I was going to say that. Yeah. yeah. The the, uh, the chase scene is again. That's another thing that if it's not shot well, can be dull.
2: Can be boring.
0: Oh yeah. It Can be yeah. boring. But it can I, be it I, can be numbing. Like you're saying that word numbing, where you just I, I've there's so many action films where during. I'm interested in the sort of drama, but then when the action stuff starts, I'm like, you know, yeah. But the, I but the really uh, good, get this over with. The really
1: good, you know, scenes on it, like we can talk about like duel, or we can talk yeah. about mm-hmm. uh, you know George Miller stuff, or the way things are shot. Which yes. those films yeah. are basically well,
0: action from first frame until the last yeah. frame. Yeah. Yes. Also,
3: some really good like the car chases and all those great those stunts that were in that film give that film a very big budget look mm-hmm. because you Plus see yeah. low budget and you get this kind of little crappy. And you're doing low, it. At, but, you know, but I'm it's sorry. like, I saw it and I was like, this movie does not look like a cheap, because I was expecting, oh, this kind of low-budget action movie. Sure. But it was like, wow, this looks like a big-budget action movie. And you
1: do it on the real the real streets. Yeah. Real streets. Ula ba- yeah. Uh, Ulaanbaatar, and it's really mm. cool. Yeah. You do just don't see that. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah so. we,
2: we had, so we shot the car chase um, scene in, uh, and as well as the safe house scene, which is my favorite. Uh, this sort of, uh, these scenes are back-to-back, and they're my favorite two scenes in the film, probably. Um. We shot them in what's called the Gare District. Now, in Los Angeles, it's actually, Ulaanbaatar is shaped a little bit like Los Angeles, where you have sort of a, a bowl with downtown in it and then hills that surround most of the city. Now, in L.A., of course, the hills that surround the city have a lot of very, very expensive real estate, beautiful homes, and, and so on and so forth. In Mongolia, it's the opposite. The Gare the District is, is, um, is the working class and, and um, middle class to poor people and a lot of them i mean you will see tons of yurts which they call gers hence the Gare district a gare is a yurt and um and a
0: yurt for our listeners is a tent
2: exactly it's it's tent a tent house. shaped like a hat, like a hat box um with a stove at the middle that's used both for cooking and heating um and in, in a few hours, you can take apart one of these gears and put it on the backs of a couple horses, and you can move. It's the nomadic society. Mm. But the nomadic society has moved into the hills around the capital city, and, hmm. and a lot of these folks work in the city now. Mm. Um, and uh, so we shot the car chase up there, and uh, we did have some stuff. We, we, we hired local drift driving um, drift racing wow. is very uh, big in Mongolia, yeah. big in Asia in general, but yeah, very big in Mongolia. So, uh, we hired a young guy who was an award winning, um, he'd won a championship, like a world championship, um, in drift racing. And, um, we bought two cars, uh, are Lexus, I think IS 300s, but they're called Altezza in, uh, in Mongolia. Um, and, uh, stick shift. They're not particularly powerful, but they can be drifted. They're uh, front-engine, so, rear-wheel-drive, stick-shift cars. Right, and we right got a, side or
1: left side? Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, seriously. That's like, yeah, I, <laughs> I think drifting would make I it drove
2: one. It's the only time I've driven a right-hand-drive okay. car. Yeah. I don't know if they were... They were both right-hand-drive. They were both. We, we oh. put a roll cage in one. Um, the, then the one that was... Uh, one gets destroyed. I don't think it's giving away too much. Um, <laughs> uh, but we... We had permission to, to block and shoot a road way up in, in, in the Gare District, um, where, there, where part of the scene takes place, much of the scene takes place. But the beginning of the scene, um, our characters run out. They steal one of these fake police cars. They have to reverse it out of uh, a gravel driveway onto a main road in the Gare District while they're being chased by a guy, a gangster who's descri- disguised as a policeman. And their cars are nose-to-nose as they race through a city street um, on oh. the outskirts of Ulaanbaatar. And not outskirts. I mean, it's like Wilshire Boulevard, basically. <laughs> wow. um, and uh, we had no permission to use the road <laughs> oh, right off this driveway. So when I arrived that morning, um, my producers and production managers said to me, Drew, this is a major artery that goes into the city. So, And it's, it's about rush hour <laughs> oh, in the morning. So... Um, road's going to be busy and we're not going to be able to to shoot any of the chase so we can only shoot from the gravel lot by the safe house up to the edge of the road and stop there and i said that's fine i said characters can run out get in the cars gun it and we've got a little bit of road you know a little bit of driveway here a little bit of road at the top of the driveway they can Mm -hmm. stop right at the edge of the road and, and we'll be fine So I get to work uh, mounting cameras to cars, talking to my stunt coordinator, figuring out this. The shots were already storyboarded. My cinematographer's building cameras. The whole team is working. But I keep noticing the Mongolian production team, production managers, and our our first AD are over, and they're in a huddle. And (laughs) they're they're huddling, and then they'll periodically look over at me. They'll huddle again. (laughs) <laughs> and this is the way a lot of this stuff had gone in Mongolia. Because in Mongolia, really, they pride themselves on anything as possible. Right. I never thought I'd have the experience, a quick segue here, but I actually was able to move a train with a walkie-talkie. Just saying, oh okay, God. move the train because there's a moment in the scene where they, the moment in the film where they run onto a moving train. Oh, that's
4: funny.
2: I mean, that what as somebody who played with trains as a kid, right? What, what an incredible blessing so to be able to. Do that. But that's really funny. so I told them, yes, okay, it's fine. You know, all these fences at the outsides of, of people's homes in the Gare district—they all look the same. We can go way up into the hills and and find a place that matches and just do a match cut. Right. And they said, okay, fine. But then. <laughs> After they huddled for a while, and we were, we were starting to shoot the, the driveway scene, um, I get approached by the production manager. He says, Drew, do you want us to block this road? <laughs> <laughs>
3: oh, during rush hour. During rush hour.
2: <laughs> major artery. I mean, this is Santa Monica Boulevard, basically equivalent. And I said, yes, yeah. How much can, how, can we block the road? We had borrowed real police uniforms from oh. the Ulaanbaatar police. <laughs> 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 and guns.
3: Oh, this is the illegal thing. <laughs> <shit. laughs>
2: so we well this isn't the most illegal thing oh. that happened. It's <laughs> just semi-illegal. We we took two black vans which were our the vehicles which we, you know, moved crew around with. Right. <laughs> two PAs dressed as policemen. We blocked a half mile of this road. Oh, jeez. And then we staged Um, I love this. We staged the whole thing from out of the driveway, high speed. (laughs) And then cars are nose to nose. One car going reverse fast, the other car going forward fast on a non-closed road. Pedestrians on both sides of the street. And then our expert driver, um, one of our two expert drivers, actually we had more than that, um, does what's called a handbrake 180 Mm. um, with a car, by the way, that had a broken parking brake. Um, And so we would shoot a couple takes. And let traffic go through and shoot a couple takes. Now, mind you, one of the, these look exactly like they're real police cars. they're modeled to be exactly like they're real police cars. Wow. But there was a dent in a giant blood stain on the side of one of these cars. So somebody who we had inconvenienced in traffic called the real police right. Oh, no. Uh, now, mind you, we had met with the real police. We had borrowed uniforms from them. We had borrowed guns from them. Wow. Um, which then were modified to be safe, by the way.
0: So not um, from a, like a wardrobe house. You actually got police uniforms from the police.
2: We got pol- police uniforms um, from the police. We wow. got guns from the police. That we would got, not happen here. <laughs> we got <laughs> extras from the police. Wow. Wow. We went up to the second floor during location scouting of the, of the, the major police station there, police headquarters. And it was, it's the detective's floor. And it's special to be up there at all. Yeah. And so I'm meeting with police detectives. Of course, they all want their photo taken with the six foot six tall American. <laughs> um, and we're hanging out and having tea. And then they bring out a table full of guns um, that were all grabbed from gangsters. Right, confiscated that's stuff. stuff. Oh, yeah, and most of them were Russian knockoffs or many of them were Russian knockoffs of American guns. Like there was what something that looked exactly like a cult 1911, which if I was making a noir detective film, it yeah. would be my first choice. Um, there was an aircraft gun on that table. We didn't need <laughs> that. Wow. Uh, it's it's how, where we, how, sir.. Yeah. It's where we got our ak47. Wow. Um, by the way, for the record, everybody, all these guns ended up being modified by our um, by our, our armor, our munitions expert wow. uh, so that they could only fire blanks. Excellent. Um, we constricted all the barrels. <laughs> and such. But yeah, so the car chase um, we, we, somebody called and they didn't call apparently because they were mad that they were sitting in traffic. They called because there was a police car racing through the streets with a dent and a bloodstain on the side of it. That's wow! Funny. So this person calls the real police, and the real police show up. And of course, they say to us, guys, you can't, you, you <laughs> can't dress up like cops and close a road. And what? you're like, why not? This is Mongolia. This is how yeah. we do it in Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but so I'm an American. I, of, course, of course, the Mongolians are protecting me from this situation. But I'm thinking, okay, we're... 10 seconds from being shut down. Right. Perhaps for the rest of the day. Yeah.
0: rest of your life. Yeah, exactly.
2: And they're talking to him and, and, and apparently what they say is they point to me and they point to Yozua, um, my cinematographer. And they point to Lloyd, our stunt coordinator, and says, do you see those people over there? They are famous Hollywood producers. <laughs> <laughs> we need to be accommodating to them. We need to be welcoming. You know, Mongolia prides itself at being a very welcoming culture and it really is. And, uh, so, so we need to do this for them. And the police are thinking, okay, well, and he said, and if you'll call your superiors at the police station, they'll tell you that, that, that we have the full cooperation of the Mongolian police, uh, the Ulaanbaatar Police Department. And they did. And when they called in, uh, the folks at the Ulaanbaatar Police Department assigned them to close roads for us for the rest of the day. Wow. wow that's nice. nice. So we Hollywood. Went, yeah. We went from, um, and of course, none of us are famous Hollywood producers. But, uh, <laughs> Not yet. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, so we went from probably being shut down, maybe, perhaps arrested, to having a pair of policemen uh, shutting out roads for us the rest of the that day. That is amazing. Wow. Perfect. Nigeria.
3: Well, Drew, well, it has been so cool having you here. Bless you. I could Thank hear you. a thousand of those stories. Yeah, I know.
0: I know. I know Can really, uh, you, will you come back and be on the podcast again, and yes. I'd love to. Because we, have to, we I think there's a few other topics we could probably talk about. <laughs> I think we could hit on several. It would be because I could bore you
2: with.
4: Uh, oh, talk all boring. Talk all day.
1: No, this yeah. was really. It was great. Fantastic. I mean, just to, to, uh, Thank just you the so much. Just a taste of what you went through, and um, the Mongolian connection. Please uh, seek it out when it comes yes. out. Look for it uh, on uh, iTunes and Amazon. It's super this fun. Year, yeah, yeah. very is. impressive.
2: I, I hope anybody um, listening uh, will, will check it out. And yes for I think sure. I think you'll really enjoy it. It's a great action picture. Thank you picture. so much. Thank you. Thank you guys. All right, All Drew
1: right. Thomas, Drew in Thomas,
3: in house. thanks Mongolian very much. connection. Thank you.
0: Thanks for joining us. We're walking out the door. Cinemondo, signing off.